approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt, how are you? Good. I'm so good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Life is good. Um, I was telling you earlier, it's been a great day. I got up, got a bunch of things done work-wise. I still have more things to do, but uh, I feel like I made a lot of progress today. Good. I'm glad. I The only thing, I don't have anything new in my life. The only thing I have to add before we start today is, uh, I wouldn't say maybe a retraction, but I learned something from some listeners who commented on one of the episodes that we did. We did an episode a couple weeks ago on Maslow's hierarchy and that before he died, he was working on this concept of self-transcendence yeah. that didn't kind of make it to the pyramid. And I had some people reach out to me um, and I learned some stuff that I just wanted to share since we did an episode on it. And Maslow, before he wrote his paper on his hierarchy of needs, he spent six weeks with the six Sika people, Blackfeet. And um, it was really interesting that he was learning from this indigenous community. And essentially from his journals, he was talking about how he estimated that 80 to 90% of the Blackfoot tribe had a quality of self-esteem that was only found in 5% of his own population. And so he was noticing mm. that this communal way of life and how they structured their society actually really supported self-actualization. And that he essentially thought, how do I get this into Western society? And that's when he kind of created like, all right, we're going to have to have this first, then this, then this, then this, and then he, you know, have this kind of pyramid. And so anyway, um, I just told, I just, I never knew that. I never knew that connection that a lot of what he learned about self-actualization was from an indigenous community. And really that, that kind of top tier that he had for the Western world model was actually being done successfully at 80 to 90% in the community that he had spent six weeks in. That was, you know, structured different than kind of the capitalistic West. So that was really interesting to dive into. And I wanted to add that because I didn't talk about that when we did our episode on it. I really didn't dig into Maslow at all because I was just focused on the self-transcendence piece, but that was interesting to learn. And so for the listeners who reached out and wanted to make sure that that story was added to that, I just wanted to add that. It becomes pretty clear that there are other ways of living as a human being that are that are supportive of a healthier individual, right? And, and even though hunter-gatherer societies come with all of its own ills and risks, uh, certainly shorter lifespans and um, you know the battle to survive every single day, I think there's also a recognition that along the lines of what you're talking about, the folks in today's world who still live in these societies that are more tribal, um, more primitive, although I don't really like 
that word more percentage. communal let's say more yeah. communal mm -hmm. but there there seems to be that ability to be happier more content to feel more productive and have your what you contribute to the group being meaningful um there seems to be a lot of upside to that and i i yeah. think as we move into the next you know 100 years i think you're going to start to see that kind of research that plots out because you know you talked about the yale course i think either last week or the week before where they're doing kind of the pathway to happiness you know how to how to be a happy human being and uh, i went and checked that out last week and i just think as we're trying to optimize the human experience maybe uh maybe modern society you know certainly not the other forms of government where people are ruling with an iron fist but even within like democracies i especially like folks who are uh have mental illness um they tend to in primitive societies or in communal societies seem to still have purpose whereas in modern the way the modern world works they tend to be kind of left off to the side and it only adds to their depression and and to the negative things that they're experiencing yeah there's and a so TikTok, it'd be interesting i think yeah there's a TikTok creator who's really talking about the the thing that everybody's trying to figure out is how can we get back to communities because all the markers are showing that it's better for your mental physical emotional health yeah how do we get back to that but the machine of patriarchy created so much scientific advancement because when you have the wife at home and the husband is going out and pushing kind of these edges, then you get these kind of modern technological advancements. And so is there some kind of way that we can keep the technology and keep the science moving forward and still be able to create these communities? Mm -hmm. And so how do we balance that? Anyway, it was really yeah. interesting to dig into. Yeah. So to add totally. thank you listeners. I'm excited for that. that yeah. Cool. So today on the podcast, we have someone that I met on TikTok, and I was just loving um, the content that he was putting out. And I just said, I have to listen. I have to hear this guy. I have to hear his story. So we're going to bring on Matt Hirschberger. You can find him on TikTok under Better Strangers Books. And he has a master's degree in human rights. He's a travel writer. He's been writing for 15 years. And you can check out... Um, under Better Strangers, Better Strangers Books, you can find his writing and just really loving the content about kind of the modern world and atheism and nihilism and um, commentary on just society in general and just really excited to welcome Matt onto the program. Welcome, Matt. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Awesome. Right. Yeah, glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm loving the content that you're creating on TikTok and I am just so excited. Give us like the bird's eye view of like your story and how you became, you know, how you came to writing about the kinds of concepts that you talk and write about. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of been, I, I have never really committed to a single career and um, I went into school for journalism. Then I graduated, then journalism in the United States collapsed. And then I went into the lucrative world of nonprofits. Uh, and uh, then I went into travel writing kind of during like the clickbait era. Um, and then I've spent the last five years at a library. Um, you know, I grew up Catholic and I've always kind of thought a lot around, you know, I became an atheist when I was probably 16 years old. And so I've always thought a lot around like, you know, philosophy and, and kind of what I want my replacement philosophy to be, having been raised with one that I've more or less totally rejected. And so um, that led me to some dark places. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff with like climate and that led me to some dark places. 
And, um, you know, probably 10 years ago, I started dealing with, with some pretty bad depression. And um, I started pulling out of it shortly before the pandemic hit. And <laughs> then that happened. And I, so I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, I'd been through several years of therapy and I'd done a lot of, a lot of work prior to that happening. But as this stuff has come up more and more, like I've been thinking like, you know, this is people, a lot of people are going through similar things right now in terms of, you know, kind of despair about the future and um, just the state of the world. And so when I got on TikTok, I kind of did a book, a reading list that I called the anti-despair reading list. Um, and that kind of morphed into what it currently is. And so like the, you know, elevator pitch is it's facing a bleak world with hope, optimism, and curiosity. Sorry, hope, imagination, and curiosity, not optimism. We'll get back to that, I'm sure. But, um, you know, trying to look at stuff and recognize that it's really dark while also, you know, understanding that there might be many ways forward that you can, you know, still have a good life and you can still enjoy being alive. And, you know, so that's kind of been the direction I'm heading and I'm still kind of seeing where it goes. Hmm, so interesting. Were you, did you have, would you say like a faith crisis or faith transition in your teenagers with Catholicism or it never really kind of took root? How would you explain all that? Yeah, I, I was, I remember being angry at the priest because he was being mean about St. Thomas. And I was like, he's the only one behaving properly by doubting everything. And so like, I was never gonna be a good Catholic. I, I just, I was kind of born that way. But, um, you know, through my teen years, you know, my, we had, we had a, we, had, this was during the 2000s. So it was when a lot of the really bad stuff was happening within the church. Our priest embezzled a bunch of money. My mom became kind of the whistleblower on it. And then we got, we were the ones who were kind of kicked out, not the priest. And so like that more or less like got me furious about it um, to the point where I went into kind of like the Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins type of anti-theism for a number of years. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't so much a faith crisis because I never had it, but it was kind of like that became my guiding philosophy. Uh, and then that naturally, you know, eventually the anger sort of burns out a little bit and then that collapses too. And then you're left with kind of nothing. So, you know. <laughs> I, I want to ask you a ton of questions about nihilism and, and maybe Britt, if you've got any questions, maybe to set up just the, this facet of the conversation first. Uh, any thoughts from you? Otherwise, yeah. I'll I'll jump into it. Yeah. So we can you can you know define nihilism as just kind of a belief in nothingness that there's no inherent meaning to the universe. But I guess I'm more interested in uh, how would you define nihilism from the point of view of experience? What was the experience of it like? Mm. I think that's much more interesting than like what is the definition of it. Yeah. I mean, you know the. I've occasionally I'll use the word and people be like, well, that's not really nihilism. And it's like, okay, you know, like to go with the simplest definition, which is the Lebowski definition, which is just, we believe in nothing. Like, you know, like that's the, that's the easiest one for the experience of it. For me, it was just, I kind of didn't have any sort of guiding light philosophy, like, you know, philosophically, I couldn't, there was nothing really to grasp onto. I was, I had been intensely critical of the church and then I was trying to be equally critical of any other system that I kind of looked at and I was finding flaws in everything I was looking at. And so it felt like there was kind of nothing to grasp onto. And so um, for me, like the philosophy of nihilism kind of goes hand in hand with the actual mental health issue of depression for me. Um, you know, I, I've done therapy, I've, I've on 
antidepressants and everything. So I've treated that kind of as its own thing, but like the philosoph philosophical side of the depression has been nihilism. And so I kind of understood fairly early on when I was trying to confront my depression that I needed to come up with some sort of positive system. Because once, you know, once anti-theism falls apart, you, you realize like, well, you're not standing for anything, you're opposing something and you need to find something. And there are people who are anti-theists who do stand for things and do have, you know, positive philosophies. But for me, I didn't. And so when that kind of, when I was like, I don't think this is what I want to invest the rest of my life in. I don't, if I'm in opposition to the church, I'm still relating myself to the church and I don't want to do that. And so, you know, I, it was kind of uh, trying to discover something. So working through depression was a lot of like exploring a bunch of different sort of philosophical ideas and trying to figure out if there was kind of a day-to-day -day system that would work for me. Um, and it's, you know, it's, that's a, still, it's an ongoing thing, but it's, it's gone mostly well. Yeah. I really like that, um, definition. Bill, you had something, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, having deconstructed religion myself, I'm an atheist. I, I don't find any religion to offer, uh, a, a way of living life that I think treasures the individual's well-being. But I never came out in any part of this. I never, I never went down the nihilism road. Britt, you said you did for a while. I never went down that. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on what it is that sends some of us down that direction uh, and others of us seem to recognize that it's all myth, nothing means anything, and yet somehow able to sort of avoid uh, to avoid that. Yeah, I'm, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I think that, like, for me, a lot of it was confusing, like, you know, rational thinking for, like, a philosophy. And so, like, you know, when you're in, the, like, when you're talking about people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, a lot of what they're talking about is, oh, science can take the place of, of you know, religion. You can use that to get your moral truths. And, you know, that's that's something that Sam Harris always pushes um, I don't agree with that. And I think that it comes from the inability to tell the difference between like, what's, you know, your subjective world and your objective world. And for me, I kind of confused the two for a very long time. And I thought that, you know, I think I had an inflated sense of how much my perceptions and my understanding of things reflected reality. I think I, I thought I understood a lot more about it than I really did. And so I don't know if that's entirely it. But, you know, for me, it was kind of like it took a lot of time to break down that every philosophy, every ideology has stories attached to it. And those stories will work to a point and then they'll stop working. And, um, you know, I had to get kind of comfortable with the idea of like, OK, you know, you're, you're kind of taking an, an agnostic approach where this story works for this situation. This one works for this situation. Switch between the two is needed. And, you know that that took me a while to get to because otherwise i was trying to think of like well what's just the correct philosophy which is a problem <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, yeah i got that. stuck there for like a decade <laughs> yeah <laughs> of like and that was also like my previous mormonism because mormonism had this idea that like okay this is the truth and therefore when you know the truth then you know how to pattern your life and so when I left Mormonism, I still had that kind of pattern in my brain. Well, like, I'll just find the truth and then I'll know how to pattern my mm -hmm. life. And then like a decade went by and it's like, well, I still have to yeah. do with my life because I'm still searching for ultimate truth. And then mm. 
having to realize that there that I would probably never interact with ultimate reality. That mm -hmm. was like just so crushing to me. But I wonder, Bill, in response to your question, I wonder if if people who tend towards nihilism are also somewhere on the depression scale, because with not, I, I think that who was it that said, maybe it was Viktor Frankl, that the level of suffering that you have in your life, you have to have kind of a level of needing to match that level of suffering. And so if you're someone who maybe tends towards suffering and depression, then maybe you're going to have to have more meaning in order to kind of match that. And so nihilism is going to be much harder of kind of a gap and you're just going to be left with, well, life is suffering and what's the point of this. But I think, Bill, you, you kind of, your first steps out of Mormonism, you just really enjoyed life so much more. Like you had friends and you had activities and you had people who love you and you had work to do. And I just wonder if you already had all that in place so that you never had yeah. to go there. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. There was, there was some sort of structure there that made it easy to find meaning in in the day-to-day -day creativity or the day-to-day -day yeah. helping people or whatever those things And you things just went were. like right there. And I just like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, these conversations are important because humanity is such a spectrum and being able to help folks who are prone to fall into uh, uh, negative mindsets in terms of how they feel about themselves, how they feel about life. I mean, anything we can do to, come up with real rubber meets the road solutions to that, I think is helpful. Yeah. And that's, and that's just to add, you know, like something that um, I fairly recently figured out was, you know, I'd always kind of, because a lot of it was Christianity, but it's also a lot of like Western philosophy is the idea that my mind and my body were separate. And, you know, so a lot of what I was doing was not taking care of myself. Uh, you know, I had started working from home. I was in a state. I was I just moved to New Jersey, which I didn't know anyone I was socially isolated. Um, you know, wasn't wasn't exercising, was drinking more than I should. And all of that stuff contributes directly to depression. And you kind of assume when you're in that 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 reality tunnel was like Timothy Leary would call it like, you know, you assume that that's all of reality and you don't understand that actually in part what's happening is that you're thinking this way because it's kind of your body's response to a lot of what's happening around it. And so a big part of me kind of coming out of, of depression has been understanding that I have to take care of my body in a more serious way. And I've got to pay more attention and that my mindsets are reflective of kind of like how I feel. Like if you're in pain, you're not going to be particularly nice on a given day. Uh, just like if you're having a, you know, like if you're feeling great, then you're going to be nicer. Like it's, you know, I worked at a library. I saw what people who are in chronic pain behave like, and it gets harder and harder to blame them for that if they're just in pain all the time. So. Yeah. And that's, and that's hard because the, the arguments of nihilism can feel so philosophically convincing mm -hmm. that it can feel like this is reality. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm like you where like, I'm an absent-minded professor kind of where like my body is just the thing that moves my head like from room to room and I just don't mm. really like it took me a long time to just even like check out what was going on in my body um, because like you're just so convinced by the reason of it but not realizing that you know we're always creating reality as we're seeing it and you know it's hard you get caught in I got caught in these thought loops that I couldn't think myself mm. out of and I literally got stuck and had to get help getting out of thought loops that I literally couldn't see around anymore. Yeah. So for you, um, I, on one of your, 
um, TikToks, you talked about antinatalism and how that was related to your nihilism, which was a huge thing for me. It was like, for me, it was like postpartum depression mixed with nihilism, mixed with antinatalism. And it's, it was a really dark place. And it's something we've never talked about on the podcast before. So can you kind of go through what antinatalism is and maybe kind of how you felt about it at the time? And then mm -hmm. I know you're a parent now mm -hmm. and kind of maybe how you've made peace with that on maybe the other side of nihilism. Yeah, it's it's um, so antinatalism in, in short is just the belief that humans it's morally wrong to have children. It's um, morally wrong to uh, to bring children into the world because life is so much suffering and you're effectively sentencing someone to death and to suffering. Um, I came to it actually through the first season of the TV show True Detective. Um, Matthew McConaughey's character in that is an antinatalist. Uh, the writer of that show pulled a lot from a, a horror writer. I'm a big horror novel fan called Thomas Ligotti, who wrote a book, a nonfiction book called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, in which he says that, you know, consciousness is a mutation that um, is terrible and should never have happened. Uh, we're freaks and we should all just commit to not having kids and just hold hands and walk into the darkness together. That's kind of the way that they put it. Um, and then, you know, you, there are all these other arguments around, um, around what, you know, there's a big consent argument, like is, you know, uh, because you can't ask someone to, someone can't ask to be born, it's, it's immoral. And so, um, they've got some, they've got some very good arguments. I, uh, for me, I came to it through kind of true detective. I had just gotten engaged, um, and I was doing a lot of activism work and this was in kind of a dark time. Um, it was around, you know, a lot of the, those, those really alarming, uh, climate change reports were coming out. Um, you know, I'm, a creature of the left. So when Donald Trump got elected, that was catastrophic. And, you know, um, there was a lot of just looking at the future and kind of seeing a lot of the, the ideas of what I thought the future would be collapsing. And so for me, it was like, you know, what are, what am I even bringing them into? And so I, that was a big part of my, and, you know, and I, I had, you know, I was already engaged and when we gotten engaged, we'd agreed, like we're having kids. And so like, it became a thing where I was like, I'm not sure. And, um, you know, we, we, we now have two, I'm very happy that we did. Um, but it was kind of like struggling with those questions and a lot of me moving past it was kind of coming to the idea that life actually, you know, not to disagree with Buddha, but I don't think that life is suffering. I think that life is actually by and large, pretty nice in the day to day. My parents had me in 1986, which is, you know, Reagan era to the height of the cold war. I could have been vaporized in a nuclear war at any moment. And I'm glad that they had me. Um, you know, uh, you get into a lot of very dark places when you post stuff like that on the internet, because it is a lot of people who do think it's immoral. And I do think that being child-free is a completely moral, valid choice. But I also don't believe that human life is a curse. Uh, you know, I'm not believing it's a miracle in like the Christian sense, but I, I do actually think that most of the stuff that we get to do is pretty enjoyable if you're able to pay attention to that and not just pay attention to the really bleak stuff that is also always happening. Yeah. So um, my thoughts here. So I probably am an anti-natalist Brit. Um, we were just having this conversation the other day that, that having children, and, and again, I have four kids, wouldn't trade it for the world. Like they're here and great. Um, I say that with all that enthusiasm. Huh? <laughs> I'm going to put that uh, in here. You know, but, Bill once said about his kids, they're here. <laughs> 
They're here. Right. <laughs> I'll say it at your funeral. <laughs> Please. Um, it feels like a selfish thing when we decide to have children. It really feels like most of us, when we make a decision to have kids, it really is more about something about us. And uh, I agree with you, Matt, that for the most part, the humans that are brought into this world in a modern uh, advanced society, for the most part, I think, have a pretty good day-to-day -day life. The, the trouble comes in not only when we start to take into account uh, other geographic locations where life is just really hard, uh, but also um, there's all there's always the risk that the kid and like you said it, it isn't a consensual choice for the person being brought into to existence but it could be a life riddled with cancer it could be a life riddled with you know whatever it is uh having to get you know a transplant or being you know being in a hospital for large portions of one's life uh immense amounts of pain and i feel like when I ponder death, me personally thinking about what the dying process will be like, I'm, I'm sort of nervous. And, and my mindset is that no matter how good my life is, and it's fantastic, but no matter how good it is, I think in those last three minutes, the last thing I'm going to be worried about is justifying how good my life was, and hence death's no big deal. Instead, I, I feel like death is going to be, if I'm, if I'm aware that it's happening, I think it's going to be a horrible thing. And even a, a life well lived might be meaningless in those last three minutes. And as you point out, like every person comes into this life having to go through death. And and the other thing too is we have obviously a, a population crisis of sorts. We're tearing the planet apart. And and there's a big chunk of me that just feels like we could just use less people. And while we're a species on the planet like every other species, unlike every other species we also act sort of like a plague or a virus that just infects everywhere and eats everything. Um, and, and so some of those kinds of thoughts are the things that run through my head. And I often wonder if bringing a kid in to life, not knowing what that child's life will entail, that even if only 3% or 5% of human beings have really miserable lives, if it's worth having life come into existence as a human being at all. Any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the that's the um, that's what I, I call the Thanos approach to to humanity is the thinking, especially when you talk about like the plague thing. Yeah, um, we've talked approach, about Thanos, and that Bill and I are just like, what's the problem here? He's the yeah. guy. <laughs> well, you're apparently in good company. There were hundreds of thousands of people who um, who joined who joined this subreddit called Thanos did nothing wrong. Um, and That's they, yeah, it was, it was huge. It was huge. They actually ended up right before the release of infinity war. They deleted half of them from the group is like part of a marketing gimmick. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the thing, you know, and this is one of my, one of the reasons I kind of came around on this is that I, I don't think that about humans. I think that we have political and economic structures that are parasitic. Um, I think that a lot of the way, the ways that we've chosen to organize things are, are exploitative and bad. But the vast majority of human history, um, most people have been able to live pretty well within nature. And, you know, there are many different types of ways that they choose. Some of them have very hierarchical societies. Some have very communal societies. Uh, even, you know, even way back, um, there is a whole ton of variation in that. But, I, I, you know, I, I do think that it's when I talk about, 
you know, and this is the left. It's like, don't blame people, blame capitalism. Like, you know, like that's kind of the, that's kind of where I like to go in that. Um, But in terms of, you know, death and suffering, it it, it does come down to like, you know, like, all right, are you going to go fully utilitarian and weighing the two against each other? Um, Does the moments of death negate the moments of life? Uh, Do the hard things that you go through, um, do they wash out the meaningful things you go through? And I think that a lot of that comes down to perspective. And I, I think a lot of it for me has been like, you know, I, I, to be honest, like I, I love edibles. Marijuana is legal in New Jersey now. And, you know, I take one of those every now and then. And whenever I do, I'm like, man, most of the stuff that I do is great. Like I love just being in bed or like taking a walk outside or listening to music. Like most of the sensations I get to feel. And, and, you know, when you start paying more attention to that stuff in the day to day, you start realizing there's lots of very small, pleasurable things that you get to go through every day. I get to play with my kids every day. I get to, you know, like in my brain wants to fixate on the one guy on TikTok who mm-hmm. was a jerk to me. And mm-hmm. I'll spend all day thinking about that, or I'll spend all day thinking about a fight I've had with someone in my family or, you know, and if I can, you know, kind of detach from that and focus on like the here and now, which again, very Buddhist, um, you know, you, you start getting a lot more joy out of things. And I think that there's such an abundance of that available that, that I, I think that it washes out a lot, like a whole lot of suffering. And, and the, you know, the final thing is just in terms of having um, traveled quite a bit, um, you know, I hear a, a lot about people talking about the lives of suffering that people live in the rest of the world and in poverty and stuff. And the poverty in a lot of the rest of the world is awful, but I also wasn't seeing just oceans of unhappy people in these places. Um, there were some, there was some really dark stuff. Um, but I think a lot of people are living very happy lives, even in situations that we would think of as being really constrained or really hard. Um, so, you know, I, it, it I didn't, you know, like the, the reason I turned from antinatalism is like, I, I thought that part of it was that I was thinking that way. And the other part of it was like, I don't think I can say that for everyone else. And I am happy my parents had me. And, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, I hope that my kids are happy that I had them. There are definitely selfish reasons that I did that, but they get to grow into their own people and build their own lives. And it'll be up to them to decide what they find meaningful and exciting about it. I did see a court case where a, a child sued their parents for bringing them into the world without their consent. And I was like, wow, I really hope that my kids don't do that. Yeah. But here's, here's where I get stuck with antinatalism. So so I, I, I came to a place where I could say, if I'm just having a child in order to give myself meaning, right? Like I'm an empty hole that wants love. And so I'm going to bring a child into the world who is inevitably going to suffer in some way in order to fill a hole that I need. I do think that there's some some unethical thinking behind that. But if you're in a place where I have tools for, like you're saying, for how to focus on the things in life that are good, how to minimize suffering, how to die, how to live, how to combat nihilism, how to, um, if, if you kind of have tools for life, then like you're saying, I, I think it's a good thing to bring a child into the world and kind of continue the story. And when I was in antinatalism and nihilism, I had this thought that, you know, I wish maybe my suffering, I should have ended it with me. You know, I should have just said all of this is suffering behind me and I should have just ended it with me instead of continuing, continued it on. And now that I have better tools, 
for just human existence. I'm, I'm glad that I chose to have children in the sense that um, I'm glad that my story doesn't end with me. I'm glad that there's going to be another chapter written because there is some, you know, to have, to have the whole history of three and a half, how many, whatever million years of life kind of behind you and to have that kind of end with you and you're the last chapter, there's almost some hubris in, in kind of doing that. But here, here's a question that someone asked Sam Harris when, when they were talking about antinatalism. And it was the idea that maybe there are people now who have the tools that they should be being, bring, be bringing children into their life because you can kind of say, I have these tools and resources and I can make a pretty good bet that you'll have a life that you'll at least will be glad that you were born. But what about, you know, you're living in the 12th century and you say to someone, okay, you're going to have kids. And for the next a hundred generations, I mean, just really intense suffering. They're, they're, they're going to die pretty young. And it's just, they're going to be hanging on to the edge of survival here. Would you choose to have children if you knew that they wouldn't be happy for another, or they wouldn't say, I was glad that I was born for for many generations until they got there. And that was a question that was interesting to me. So what do you think about that? Is, is it only privilege that enables us to kind of combat antinatalism? What would, would you have children if you knew that you were in a situation where they would be kind of that group that suffered in the slums of Bangladesh or whatever for many generations? Yeah, you know, that's that's something where especially like the population stuff gets really tricky is because it, it, it can get to us talking about whether or not, you know, we don't, we're not living, I'm not living in Bangladesh. And so I can't speak for anyone going through that sort of suffering. Um, I know, I do think that if you have the ability to be intentional about the way you have a kid and be, you know, I, I do think that you have moral duties when you take on the role of being a parent, like you are responsible for making sure that this kid is, is to some extent sheltered from harm, but to another extent allowed to grow in a way that they, that they choose. And I think that, you know, there are, I think that it's extremely responsible for people who are not prepared or able to take care of kids to, to terminate pregnancies and to, you know, make choices to make sure that they won't get pregnant. Um, I think that that's an admirable position. I know that some disagreement about that in America at the moment, but like, I, I do think that you need to consider the moral implications of it. But at the same time, um, when, especially if you look historically, if you look like, you know, a thousand years ago, I don't think most people were just miserable. Like, I think that, I think that, you know, I, I'm, my family's a lot of, it's a lot of Irish history. Irish history has got a lot of really dark stuff in it. It's also got amazing music, amazing culture, amazing poetry, amazing literature, all of these myths and traditions. And it's really, there's some beautiful stuff in it. And, and that comes from really far back. I, I do think people have been enjoying their lives for as long as there have been people. Um, even if there are hard parts, even if you do, even if you die young, like you can still enjoy a lot of your life if you die, die young. Like it's, there's still beautiful things that can happen. And a lot of it comes down to your mindset. And so it, it's hard for me to, I don't want to speak for anyone else because I also don't want to look at the rest of the world and be like, you guys should stop having kids because of the environment when our country is economically doing a lot of the things that are causing, you know, so that that's where some of the population stuff gets tricky politically, but, but it, it is also, I, I do think that life, 
in any situation can be worth living. It does depend on the person and it does depend on their, you know, mental health and their. Yeah. And I, I see this conversation. I've watched some debates about antinatalism and where often the debates go is this place where you're talking about where you're essentially trying to kind of put a numerical or you're trying to judge the subjective experience of humans and how much we can actually trust it. Mm -hmm. Because if you, because our brain is just really complicated and you can ask someone, um, you can, you know, we've done this before where you can set a timer and you can say, how do you feel about your life right now? One to 10. And you can ask them throughout the day and it'll be like, you're in the middle of an argument. It's a three, it's whatever. And then you'll ask them, how was this week? And they'll say, it was a good week. I'm still glad I was alive. But then you look at kind of the numbers they gave you. And it's like, according to the numbers, you probably shouldn't even be saying that. And so this argument often gets to, um, what is the true subjective experience of, of most humans? Do most people suffer for most of the time? Are we so attached to our life force that our brain makes us try to think that our lives had meaning and purpose and were worth living when there's really no objective reality that says that that's so? And so I see these conversations get in this place where we're trying to determine just kind of the subjective experience of most humans. And that's something that's really hard to pin down because it just really depends on your biases. I mean, you can't quantify it. And the proof is that most people aren't killing themselves. You know, like it's, it's mm -hmm. most people do choose to get up and keep living through the day. And most people aren't depressed. Like depression is there's a lot of people who are depressed and I have a ton of sympathy for it. And people need to get help if they can. But, you know, it, it, most people do actually find life meaningful enough to keep going even through really hard things. And, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's there's a tendency, especially when you've got a really anxious or really depressed mindset to say, well, those people are being stupid or they're deluded or they've been tricked by their brain chemistry. And it's like, sure, fine. OK, it's still their choice. Like, you know, they, they think whatever you want about them. They still get to choose how they live through the day. And you can't tell them, Hey, your life's meaningless. You should die. Like it's, yeah. it's up to so people themselves. How does this relate to your thoughts on, do you have any thoughts on your right to die in this country? Like in this country, you don't have a right to die. So considering where you kind of were with nihilism and where you are now, do you think that we should be, you know, you shouldn't have a right to die. We shouldn't make any process where this is able to be done because we can have better tools for you and let us help you. Or if you don't consent into this universe and you're born, should you be able to opt out essentially at any time? Whew, that's a big one. Um, oh. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm definitely for having the right to a dignified death, um, especially if someone's got, you know, like the terminal illnesses. And um, I've seen people die slow and painfully. And there's nothing dignified about it. And I, I you know, I, I think that. You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to say not having gone through it myself. But like, I, I would if someone said, "Hey, I'm just done." You know, like I, I just don't want to do this. I, I'd have a hard time arguing that. In terms of of for people who are, it's because I you know I don't like it for a depression because depression in so many cases is treatable and it is temporary or sporadic. I don't I don't want to say that I think that people should just. Uh, kill themselves because I do think that like th I've gotten through it. And on the other side is really nice. Um, I'm sure I'm going to have other periods in my life where I'm depressed. Um, but 
I have a hard time with that. So I don't really have a good answer. Mm. Back to the antinatalism for a moment. I think there is some science here that says, and I'll play off the show I'm watching. The show I'm watching right now is Vikings. And it's every day is like, let's die today, you know? And, and I'm watching those guys battle to every day to maintain life. And I'm like, man, I don't want to do that. And I think the science says that the people who tend to have a lot of expendable time, they tend to be able to kind of get lost in their own thoughts and uh, don't really have anything to, to go and to do. And are, are the folks who struggle the most with depression and the folks who are on the edge of survival, who every day are trying to find, you know, warm shelter and food and uh, be able to produce something to make uh, ends meet maybe there's just some sort of adage of not having enough time for that, you know, uh, because they seem to be the group that avoids depression the most are the folks who are right on the edge of every day is life or death. And we gotta, we gotta somehow figure out how to get through this day. I, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, utopias and dystopias on my, on my uh, TikTok page and, one of the reasons I've always been obsessed with apocalyptic media and kind of, you know, and, and always me and my friends used to sit around campfires and like debate how we would survive in certain spots. Like, all right, where are we going to get a boat? Like, where are we, you know, what's our strategy if we're stuck downtown and the zombies come? And, and, you know, it's, it's always had like this intense appeal. And I think that what it is is because most of us are working in ways where we're, we're kind of not really seeing the way in which we work being connected to our immediate survival. It's so alienated. We're not getting, we're not picking our own food, pulling it off the shelves. We're not engaging with nature on a lot of the time. We're just, you know, inside and we're sitting down and we're, that's not really what a human body is supposed to do. And I think that for a lot of people like that sort of like survivalist thing, even though you watch movies like the road or, you know, Mad Max, and you think, I don't want to live through that. But there's also like kind of a fantasy where being able to connect your work during a day to your survival through that day has to be intensely meaningful in a way that a lot of like, you know, kind of especially like white collar American work is not. And so I, I can, you know, I understand why people fantasize about that stuff. And I understand why, you know, there's that amazing Chris, Chris Hedges book called War is a Force that gives us meaning, where he talks about like this intensely meaningful experience and drug-like experience of going through war and how when people come back, a lot of the time they've lost all that meaning. And they're like, you know, it's an amazing scene in the movie Hurt Locker where he comes back from the war and he's looking at all the cereal on the shelf and he cannot make a choice of which thing to pick because it just seems so stupid to him. So I, I can see that for sure. And yeah, as really you point out, I think edibles help. Edibles do help. Edibles, yeah, do edibles help. help. So, <laughs> okay. So, it. Matt, I would love to hear just some tools that you found that were helpful, kind of on your climb out of nihilism. Certainly, taking care of your body is one of those things where you have to kind of trust that maybe the way I'm seeing seeing reality is not reality. Maybe kind of my depression is helping to feel this reality. But I also want you to talk about Alan Moore, who was a new name for me. And that was usually, I feel like I'm pretty well-versed in this space, but that was a new name for me. So make sure you tell us about him too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of going through like the, the main, the main day-to-day -day things I did was I did go into therapy. Um, I got, you know, that's a terrible process. Like my wife was very supportive and kind of like help. So you call up and they're like, Oh, I'm not taking anyone. And you're like, well, I might as well just die then. And you're like, you know, so it, 
it's a terrible process trying to find a therapist. And then um, I tried to take care of my body a lot more. I started doing yoga. Um, I tried to get out in nature a lot more, tried to walk a lot, lot more. And I tried to start building community here in, in New Jersey, where I'm not from, but my wife is. And so um, I tried to find stuff like that that connected me to the world a little bit more. Philosophically, the single best person for me was Alan Moore, who, if people know about him, uh, is most famous as a comic book writer. Um, he wrote the, the book Watchmen. He wrote, wrote V for Vendetta. He's an extremely weird dude, um, but he's got a very interesting philosophy um, that's based off of um, he, he wrote a famous book called From Hell which is about Jack the Ripper. And it's kind of like a conspiracy theory version of Jack the Ripper. But in it, the, the character who is, who is Jack the Ripper uh, has this quote that is, uh, the one place gods inarguably exist is in our minds where they are real beyond refute and all their grandeur and monstrosity. So Moore wrote this and said that he read it back and realized that he'd written something that was true and that he would have to rearrange his life around that fact. And so on his like 40th birthday, he uh, got drunk and told all of his friends that he was going into magic. Um, and he ended up getting, you know, he was, he was an atheist um, and, you know, kind of grew up poor in the slums of Northampton, England. Um, but he, uh, he started building this kind of very, it's almost psychedelic because it's very influenced by like the Beats and Timothy Leary uh, worldview in which magic and art are the same thing. And where he sees magic as kind of, the equivalent of exploring our minds, you know, he talks about that or like imagination or curiosity. It's the same thing in exploring our minds as science is for exploring objective reality. And so he's got a lot of these amazing books where he kind of like talks about all of his, uh, his sort of, it's kind of pagan. It's, it, he's, he's an anarchist. He's, you know, he's, he's very, very out there on a lot of this stuff, but he basically believes that stuff can be real in your mind in the same way, you know, in, in a similar way to it being real and in, in out there, because, you know, if you, you have to think of a chair before you can build a chair. So stuff that happens in your mind does actually influence the real world. For him, it became literally true because he wrote V for Vendetta, which um, if you've seen the, you know, anonymous masks, the Guy Fox masks, those are, um, those are, uh, those are from his comic book, but basically it was in, in the comic book, he's writing about a revolution to overthrow kind of like, you know, these totalitarian governments. And then he said a couple decades later, he started seeing his masks in the street for these movements to overthrow these kind of totalitarian movements like Scientology um, and Putin and, and a lot of other stuff. Um, so he sees this kind of like porous membrane between what's in our imagination and what's out there in the real world. And for me, what was really nice about it is that it freed up kind of a way of thinking about stuff that I didn't believe as re objective reality, like you know, spirits or ghosts or cryptids or you know myths or anything like that, and a way of thinking them as a way to kind of navigate my mind rather than being a way to navigate you know objective reality. Um, and so I really ended up leaning a lot on him and kind of this like a uh, group of artists and comedians and writers that he's got kind of around him in England. Um, and, and he's just, I mean, you know, his, his magnum opus is a 1200 page book called Jerusalem, where he kind of like puts forward his idea of what time is and what an afterlife is. And kind of, it's this kind of trippy, weird stuff that I just, I absolutely drink up. So, 
it, it sounds like really the shift from nihilism into absurdism where like at, at first glance, nihilism can be really depressing. Like all that this is, is sandcastles and everything is myth and none of this is going to last and none of this is meaningful. And then as you kind of make the shift into absurdism, you can just start say, oh, these are all sandcastles. Let's go play. What's my yeah. favorite sandcastle to build just to play? And Bill and I have talked about this many times is that you know, we don't come on this podcast and have these conversations because we think we're going to save the world or do, you know, do something grand or, you know, that we're having any effect on ultimate reality at all. But it's really the sandcastle that we most enjoy playing with, you know, playing with. And that shift, it seems like a pretty big shift for most people who go from nihilism into absurdism. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, He's he's uh, more is strongly connected to the Discordians, the um, the the kind of pseudo religion of chaos worshippers. It's kind of a joke religion, but it's kind of not. Um, and they, uh, they 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 talk about how every ideology is is kind of a reality tunnel. And there is a core lie at the base of every single one of them. And if you can kind of come to terms with that, then what you can start doing is you can switch between ideologies, you know, back and forth. And um they, they invented a concept that they call the katma as opposed to the dogma. And a katma is a rigidly held belief that you hold until the second it becomes inconvenient. And so they kind of have this much more playful way of looking at the way our brains kind it of sounds operate. like Satanism where like everything they do is like ironic and silly. Yeah, and it's, it probably has some connections to that. They, they, I know that like the, um, the Levain Satanists did kind of like a similar thing, but um they, they specifically, it's just kind of getting an understanding that your brain has limitations in the way that it can function. Um, you don't have any problem looking at ants and saying they can't comprehend like, you know, quantum mechanics. We also can't comprehend certain things. There's the, the famous quote, which I, JBS Haldane, I think, said the world isn't queerer than we imagine. It's queerer than we can imagine. Um, and so a lot of it is getting a little bit more humble about what your brain is capable of and understanding that you have tools that allow you to get kind of like these peepholes into reality, but it's always just that. And it's, it's got a little bit more humility in it. And once you do kind of accept it as fun and not scary, it is really fun. Um, and you do get to kind of like play around in yeah, and just the sandbox of, you know, your imagination and in all of these different ideologies and you just get to, you just get to have a lot more fun thinking about stuff and exploring things. Did Alan Moore do mushrooms? Because this sounds like a lot of oh. my mushroom friends. <laughs> Alan Moore has done so many drugs that, he, I mean, like he, he got kicked out of school when he was 18 for dealing LSD. I mean, he came up in the 60s. The man looks, he, if, if you look at a picture of him, he's terrifying. He's got a big bushy beard and his long hair. He's, he, looks, he looks like a wizard. Um, but he, uh, it's a lot of it's very psychedelic. It's very influenced by, um, you know, by Timothy Leary and the Beats. Um, and, and tons of drug use. So, you know, that is part of it. Yeah. Um, it, it seems the folks who get, are able to get out of nihilism, um, find some other way to make meaning. You've done that, Britt, you've done that. Uh, but there certainly are folks who spend a lifetime in that that sort of mindset. And I can't, I guess my, here's another question I wanted to ask, which is sometimes in nihilism, there's this idea that because nothing means anything, then choices don't really mean anything. Right. And, and hence there's this ability to kind of justify bad behavior. 
And I, I guess maybe your thoughts on either going back to yourself at times when you were in nihilism or uh, at times where you were kind of reading the academic side of what nihilism is and studying out what, what that looks like. Your thoughts on how people determine to make choices in that mindset and what promotes somebody making bad choices or gets in or, or gets in between kind of them and bad choices and, and they still make sense of not doing horrible things or cheating the system on a daily basis to try to get ahead. Yeah, that, that one, um, my favorite response to that, there's a book called, um, oh, I'm blanking on it. It's uh, Franz DeWall, The Bonobo and the Atheist. Um, so he talks, he's a, he's, he's a primatologist. He spent his life studying chimps and bonobos. Um, bonobos? I'm not sure. But he, uh, he talks about how, for him, he sees morality in these kind of, you know, lower tier uh, social primates, morality that's similar to our own in terms of the way that these animals behave. Right. Just minus and, the story, but the same actions. Exactly. Yeah. And and so what his argument is that, you know, we try to tell ourselves that morality comes from these top down rules that we that we develop and that we have to have an authority outside of us who enforces them. When in reality, we're just kind of born with it. You know, it's it's, it's part of the way we behave. And so, you know, um, one of the things when you're, you're kind of dealing with with nihilism or, or having a, a more morally morally relative uh way of thinking about things is people say well you know doesn't that excuse anything and it's like well i still try not to hurt people just because i don't want to hurt people and if we're going to compare moral relativism i think we should put it next to moral absolutism and see which of those have hurt more people um, I, I'm, I know that both have hurt people. Um, I know that people use all sorts of justifications for bad behavior. Um, but I do think that, that most humans have kind of that, just that moral bone in their body where they, they just want to be a part of a community and to like, you know, get to experience love and friendship and all of these other things. And in order to do that, you have to like, you know, talk to the people you're with about what it is they want and how you want to treat each other and what sort of codes you want to live by. And you kind of work with that on a bottom up basis rather than accepting it from some sort of top down authority. Yeah. I, I do that process now, now as kind of a spiritual director and a coach who gets to kind of help other people find their way out of nihilism is that, um, if people have had kind of a top-down sense of morality and you have to start building that from the bottom up, you know, it just reminds me of, of that famous quote from Dostoevsky that if God is dead, then everything is permitted. And you get that. There is a little bit of that in ex-Mormonism where like the day that you're out of Mormonism, it's like, I want to open my marriage today. Do I have mm -hmm. the skills and communication to do that? No. Like I want to try all the drugs. I want to do mm -hmm. all the things. And there's like this kind of repression that comes out. And sometimes it can actually cause a little bit of suffering as you're trying to find your balance in this, in this space. Um, but essentially what I found is that with nihilism, the only way that you're going to live a life that can match nihilism, that can match these philosophical arguments, that can match the level of suffering is an authentic life that you're proud of, that you're mm. proud of living. And so what you were talking about, Matt, of I want to be a part of a community. I want people to trust me, right? Because I want mm. deep friendships. That's going to give my life meaning. I want 
So you have to kind of build your own code on what things should be and how you would want to live your life and how you would be proud of yourself. Otherwise, when you, that moral bone that we have in our body, if we just decide to kind of ignore it and just do whatever selfish desires we want to do, then you have to kind of compartmentalize in your brain. You have to put your shadow self over here. And if you're compartmentalized, you're never going to really have the freedom and the kind of inner peace and the inner child work and the shadow work and all of that, that you need to really build a truly authentic life. You're just not going to be able to do it from a place of like compartmentalizing yourself because you know that you're doing things that you can't ethically defend. And so eventually you do have to kind of live according to your own code. But my fear is that like Nietzsche's fear was that we're essentially too stupid to do this. Like <laughs> a few people are gonna be able to like transcend the matrix, they'll create their own moral code, they'll be an Ubermensch, whatever, but that most humans are, you know, our evolution will just never kind of allow us to get there. And so he was very pessimistic on us as a human society being able to transcend kind of nihilism. Anyway, yeah. what do you think? I will tell you that the angriest P I have posted. So I've been on Facebook since 2006 when I was like 20 and in college and I've posted some dumb shit on Facebook, but I will tell you the angriest people got with me was when I said that I didn't think people were all that bad. Um, you know, this is especially, uh, you know, if you engage with a lot of the anarchist writers and you look at like Kropotkin's mutual aid, he talks about how our willingness to kind of like, help each other and to work together to find solutions is at least as much of an element in furthering our evolution as something like competition. Um, as a political thing, we, we've put a lot more emphasis on competition being the good thing. But in reality, human being, you know, the, the great example of this is during disasters. There's a hurricane. I've lived through a hurricane and a tornado and 9-11. You know, so during those disastrous experiences. We hear a lot of stuff about looting and whatever, but most of our experiences were people coming together and we just went from house to house and we helped neighbors clean up. Then they came to help us clean up. And then, you know, it was just people taking care of each other just because that's instinctively what we kind of fall back into in these kind of survival situations. 9-11, uh, the example I love to use is the, the boat lift. Um, this was, there were uh, 400,000 people, which is more than was evacuated from Dunkirk, that were evacuated from lower Manhattan the day of 9-11. And that was not through any sort of organized um, thing. It was basically just boat owners on Staten Island in New Jersey and in Long Island who all were like, there are people there and they saw it on the, the TV and then they just got on their boats and they went there and they just started taking people off. And people owe their lives and the fact that they have, you know, less lung issues than they would because people did that kind of spontaneously. There's a lot of instances in which during these catastrophes, people just come together and help each other out. And we also know um, there's uh, Rebecca Solnit wrote this book, A Paradise Built in Hell, where she talks about these disaster utopias. And we know that reports of looting are consistently overstated in the event of these disasters. If there is looting, it's normally people going in and taking food off the shelves because they'll starve and food will spoil. And isn't it, isn't it like, you know, the black people were looting, but in the same papers, it's like the white people yeah. were just trying to survive. <laughs> so there is yeah. like sometimes some like racial elements. happening. Oh yeah. And, and when, when I, when I posted about that on someone was me like, well, tell me, tell, talk about all the people who were raped in the Superdome. And I was like, that's a perfect example. Those didn't happen. Those were fabricated. Um, the jur journalists reported on rumors that they never corroborated. And then authorities repeated it as an excuse to crack down. And the crackdown resulted in a lot of people murdering black men who were just trying to escape, um, you know, the waters. And so th there, 
we actually do take care of each other when it comes down to it. We've built a society to try and make it so that no one ever does that. I, I think that that goes counter to what we actually want as humans. And, and I do think that I also don't think that most people are stupid. I, I do think not everyone knows a lot about everything. Um, you know, most people I talk to can tell me a whole lot about a few things. So it, I think people are more capable than, than we give them credit for. Yeah. More capable even than Nietzsche gave him credit for. I would definitely more capable than Nietzsche <laughs> gave him credit for. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the questions you've got on here, Britt, and I want to hope you don't mind me asking it. So um, as society deconstructs myths, as they come to grips that myth stories are in fact just made up myth stories and they were there to help us collaborate together, to get us to work together as groups of people, as tribes, it seems as though as people get further and further, as a, as a larger number of the population get further and further away from believing literally these myth stories, there seems to be a propensity towards nihilism um, because you realize like, oh, this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm curious, because the nuns are the kind of the largest or the fastest growing group, and these are the folks who don't believe in any religion as literally true, they don't associate, they don't, they don't participate. They're stepping away from that component of our society. And whether you like religion or not, I, and generally I don't, it seems like it has been a binding force that has been deeply useful. And as we deconstruct it and get further and further away from it, no longer believing it collectively and generally as a population, do you feel like we are going to have a serious increase in folks feeling nihilistic and losing meaning in their life and that having a negative impact on their well-being. I mean, almost certainly. Yes. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I mean, it's absolutely happening right now. Um, hang on a second. I'm getting a phone call on this. Um, all these spam calls. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I, it's absolutely happening right now. I, I think that, you know, this is one of the things that, um, Alan Moore talks about where he says, you know, like the increase in information that we've had access to has started hitting a point where it's doubling on a regular basis. And it used to be in the past, we would build our entire worldviews and our belief systems around the information that we knew to be true. Now we're getting so much new information all the time that it's really hard to pin down what's true and what's not and what's reality and what's not. So you can believe, you know, we know, for example, that the Pizzagate conspiracy theory that, you know, the Democrats were actually a cartel for a global ring of pedophiles was not true. But the Catholic Church was for a long time protecting lots of pedophiles and using their power to do that. It sounds like it's true. And the DNC one is not. But there's stuff that sounds very similar that rhymes that is true. And so I think that for a lot of people, that's incredibly confusing and disorienting. And um, you know, the, the, the horror writer, the HP Lovecraft who's an awful racist, but he, he's got, um, the, his story, the call of Cthulhu, where he talks about as people start getting more information, uh, the, the quote is, um, let's see, someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And, you know, I would argue that there's maybe a third way um, that you could, we could also learn to live and to adapt. And it would require having a much more uh, adaptable 
way of thinking about the world and resilient um, kind of mindset where we can take change as it comes and respond to it. Um, but it does require a very different type of worldview. And when you look at these moments of upheaval, that's when stuff like Taoism or Stoicism, um, that's when they do really well um, because it kind of grounds people in the day to day. And it gives them sort of something to hold on to that's within them rather than having to be out in the world, which is chaotic and scary. Um, but people are going to go through it. Um, you know, there is a roadmap to, to, to something different, but for a lot of people, it's going to mean dealing with, you know, very dark existential thoughts about, you know, what the meaning of their life is, especially if you're just leaving something. It's just, you know, it's really frightening because it seems like nothing matters. So yeah. it, it's for sure going to happen to more people. So you're an atheist. Do you see this kind of as, I see this as kind of a weakness of, of atheism or maybe, you know, militant four horsemen atheism um, or, or anti-theism where there's such a focus on religion and there's so many books about deconstructing religion and God that we're kind of missing out on this kind of new monster over here that's going to become much more problematic which is, you know, we have suicides now that are pretty high in comparison to the last 50 years. That's as high as it's been since World War II, kind of went down and now it's kind of swinging back up. And most of these suicides are not related to, I'm Mormon and I'm gay, so I'm gonna unalive un myself. That there is a portion of that, but the majority of it is not a rejection of religious fundamentalism. It's something else. And so something I'm seeing happening, I wonder if you see this too, is that is there is there a shadow side to atheism where we're so focused on kind of trying to keep, you know, certain religions from public policy that we're not able to spend any time actually building up tools for, for nihilism and this increasing sense of what's the purpose of all of that because we're so focused on this kind of really easy, low hanging fruit of being the Christopher Hitchens in the room because it's just so goddamn fun sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I started moving away from the anti-theist thing because I, I met Richard Dawkins and uh, he was at a, I was in London and he, he came to a protest and he talked to like kind of the small group of people we had. He was talking and I was like, this guy's kind of a racist. Like, I was hearing the way he was talking about like Muslims and stuff. And I was like, that, I don't like that. And like, you know, and, and it, I was also, you know, cause I was doing like human rights stuff. I was seeing a lot of people who were religiously motivated. I, I got to meet Desmond Tutu and he's very much, you know, motivated by his, you know, his religion in fighting apartheid. And I do think that religion, especially kind of like the liberative sort of religious struggles, like I do think religion gives people a really good framework there. And I also think that, that atheism is right to point out the hypocrisies and the abuses of these religious hierarchies. I, I do think on the other end of that, it, 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 you know, the thing that turned me around on it was uh, Ursula Le Guin. And she has this thing where she says to oppose something is to maintain it. If you're walking away from a city, you're still on the same the same city road. And so if you want to try something new, you have to like kind of blaze a new trail. And so for me, defining my life by refighting by, by fighting religion would have still been defining my life by religion. And I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and I think that I think that that's that's a really tough thing for atheists to come to grips with, especially if they're atheists who left a church because you've got stuff that you're justifiably furious about 
when you leave behind something like that. And I think that that anger can take a really long time to burn through, but you know, once it's burned down, there's nothing there. You know, there's, there's, you, you, you do still have to build something else. So I, I'm, you know, I, I do, I don't believe in, in God uh, other than the Alan Moore concept of them being in our heads. And that's fun for me, but um, you know, I, I, I've stopped identifying myself primarily as an atheist, except to kind of explain to people who aren't atheists, like, no, I, 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 I would call myself an agnostic, but I don't want you to think that I'm coming back. Like I'm not going to be coming back to Catholicism or religion anytime soon. Like it's, that's not happening, but it, atheism isn't enough. It's, it's, it's one thing that's maybe worth being if it works for you, but it isn't enough. And I also, it's fine if people believe in God, <laughs> you know, it's okay they can come up with their own conceptions of it and it's fine as long as they're not hurting people. And that's a hard thing to get when, when you're mired in atheism. Um, yeah. It, it, the only pushback there, again, I agree with you and Britt has been a huge advocate uh, for looking at all the tools that religion uh, brings to the table that have been, conducive to human beings uh, surviving and benefiting for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and maybe even longer. But when you say, like, just don't hurt anybody, the the trouble, of course, is that most, uh, at least high demand religions, for sure, and I, I think even ones that we wouldn't consider high demand are, are in fact, doing some harm, right? They, they don't seem to know, understand consent or healthy boundaries um, they tend to manipulate and shame people into contributing to the system. And, and so there are kind of pieces and parts that, you know, it'll be interesting to watch society and, and humanity over the next couple hundred years, because I think that we are in the process right now, more so than any other moment where we're kind of untangling all of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of those things, uh, you know, all the things that religion does, like it's terrible. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, this was something that Desmond Tutu said, like he, yeah. he talked about how, when the, um, when the missionaries came to Africa, they thought they were, he said, they thought they were going to subjugate us with the Bible. And they didn't realize that when they handed it to us, it was actually the tool of our liberation. And I think that, you know, and I'm still never going to come to Christianity for that, but they're also the liberation theologians and, in, in you know, in South, South and Latin America, um, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, a lot of people used and, and Hinduism is very oppressive and very hierarchical and in, in, in when it's applied one way, but in other ways, it can be liberative. And I think that it's useful to think of these kind of philosophies and ideologies as tools and a tool, you can have a hammer and you can use the hammer to kill someone, or you can use it to build something. And I, I have a I have an easier time wrapping my mind around it when it comes to that. And I know people who the stability that religion has provided has made their life better. And they may not they may, for whatever reason, not be able to go through that really dark place of, you know, it, it's been 20 years since I left since I left the uh, the Catholic Church and I'm still going through it. I'm able to do that because I was born to the upper middle class white family and a male and a straight male. And, you know, and I didn't have to process a whole lot of other trauma along with it. It was able to go through it because of that. And so if people can get to a point where they are using their religion as a way of helping people rather than exploiting them or hurting them, you know, then I'm not really going to criticize them having that because as far as I'm concerned, the people who are 
using that as a tool for liberation are as much my allies as, you know, atheists who are doing it for the same. Whereas atheists who are, you know, like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, who used it to justify the Iraq war. I mean, they were using their new atheist. They were justifying a far right, extremely religious fundamentalist viewpoint in the favor of destroying a country. And, you know, they're not my allies in that situation. <laughs> it's, you know, right. the allies for me are the people that are trying to help the ones that are like marginalized or poor or who actually are having a hard time. And, and I think that that you still have to navigate a lot of differences in viewpoints and you still have to like kind of lay boundaries and lines that you can't, you know, like, you know, you, you might be a fundamentalist Christian and doing the right work, but I still do put, you know, LGBTQ people being humans as a precondition of interacting. Like, you know, like there is, there's stuff like that that you can still put up as boundaries. Right. Um, like we have to agree to some ground rules. Yeah, totally. And yeah. by the way, you, I think you hit it on the head in great response. There is good and bad found in and outside of religious frameworks. So, yeah. Mm. Well, nihilism is, you know, there's a lot of nihilism at the core of fascism. Uh, there's a lot of nihilism at the core of some of the, you know, um, well, Russian nihilism was an inspiration for for the for the the Russian communists. I mean, there's there's there any ideology when it's applied too rigidly and when it's the only view and when you're willing to kill people because of that view can be abused. And I I, current, I have not found one that that hasn't been used for violence. I it just you know like I wish that there was. I but there is no one right one. It can be used badly or it can be used well. Mm. Yeah. Bill and I have talked about before, you know, is atheism a privilege because it means that you have enough um, structure and resources that you're able to kind of step away from, from religion. And Neil Brennan has, you know, some really funny bits about how atheism is a privilege. And one of the things that kind of took me down a notch when I was in my kind of like fun atheism, self-righteousness <laughs> atheism was someone telling me, you know, do you understand how privileged it is to walk into a black church in the South and say, you're free now, all of this is made up. When <laughs> liberation theology was something that held this community together um, mm. during slavery and after, and mm. that I can't come in, you know, with my sense of privilege and just say, you're free now, because mm. it's not appropriate for me to say. And that was just like a huge, like, <sighs> Like, oh, yeah. I've never thought about that before in my self-righteousness. But I have all these cool arguments. And it's like, well, <laughs> you need to kind of maybe look at the big picture here. <laughs> but um, I have two last questions for you. And then I know you had to, to step off. So I want to be mindful of your time. I just had a question on what you think. I, I asked this to people who understand the question because I don't know the answer to this. And nobody probably really knows. But I'm curious what you think about what do you think is more dangerous for life on earth? So let's just talk about existential risk. The fact that we're going to blow ourselves up and do something that's so damaging to the environment that humankind doesn't survive. What do you think, let's say the next 500 years, a thousand years, what is more dangerous for human existential risk? Nihilism, especially like a society of nihilists who don't mm -hmm. give a shit about anything, maybe don't have the tools to deal with that or fundamentalism and the zeal that that can produce and the surety that that can produce, which one do you think is actually more dangerous? I, I wish, I wish I could just say fundamentalism and, and be done with it. I, I, but you know, fundamentalism, I think that the people who are most likely to launch nukes, which is the number one thing that could kill us all 
are going to be people who think that it is worth obliterating humankind in the service of their ideology. Same uh, for the people who are destroying the environment. They say, well, this is all, you know, there was the, the one of Reagan's his, his, like secretary of the interior who said, you know, like when people say, well, what about future generations? He said, well, we can't count on many of those before the good Lord returns. And so like, you know, that sort of thing I find way more terrifying than nihilism, but also kind of engaging in this space online. A lot of people do believe that humans should be, are a disease and should be wiped off the face of the earth. And I can see that developing in a really bad way, uh, especially in regards to kind of this emerging um, trend of eco-fascism uh, that's been happening. Where it's, it's, it's kind of a very right-wing form of environmentalism. It's always existed to some extent. There's always been a, a, a right-wing strand in, in a lot of environmentalism in the United States. But the idea that you know certain people should be exterminated for the benefit of nature, or some, or like, or that you know. A lot, you know, sterilized or this stuff. I mean, a lot of that happened in places like India, and it was pushed by our government actually um, in the in the seventies. From um, the book "The Population Bomb" by Paul Ehrlich, he ended up getting a lot of sterilization policies introduced in third world countries tied to aid because that we were so worried about population and that type of that type of approach to to nihilism, I find extremely frightening. I do not think it has grown into the greater threat yet, but I could absolutely, absolutely see it growing a lot more, especially as, you know, climate and, you know, a lot of political extremism stuff gets, gets a lot more serious, um, which it probably will for, for, for the time being. Mm. I've always thought that, that nihilism may be more self-damaging but you kind of don't get the zeal or like a community going to like have the intel to do the bomb and the war, you know, because nihilists aren't just going to, they're not going to gather around anything. They don't believe in anything. So I have a sense that like maybe nihilism is more self-harming, but maybe fundamentalism can be more others harming, but I'm not sure if I'm right about that. We've never truly seen like a fully nihilistic society. I, I mean, I, you know, there's this, it's not a perfect, comparison but i know that i do know that nazi germany was heavily influenced by nietzschean ideas um like uh if you look at one of the more famous nihilist writers of that era um louis ferdinand Céline, who was inspiration for one of my favorite writers kurt vonnegut it was this extremely pessimistic view and he ended up becoming a nazi because it was kind of like well everything's chaos there's order here and we mm. can impose order i do think that i do think that it it has it, it, i mean for me it was mostly self-damaging, but it can be channeled into a place where it's extremely harmful to others. So, I do think you know. nihilism in some ways fuels fundamentalism for that reason, that people will take a peek outside of their system or their religion and see absolute chaos and see mm -hmm. nihilists and see people committing suicide and people just having no sense of direction. Should I even have kids? I don't even know how to make up from down. And then that's so terrifying that they just kind of recede back into fundamentalism because it's like, that looks terrifying. This at least feels safe. And so I do think nihilism in some ways fuels or, or sometimes the secular world is fuel, fueling fundamentalism in just being so materialistic and then mm -hmm. depression and then nihilism and all these other mm -hmm. problems um, can sometimes be a fuel for fundamentalism itself. Yeah. All right. My last question. And then Bill, if you had any last things is if you just advice for if someone is listening and they are in this place right now, just maybe like, what would you recommend? 
Um, so take care of yourself. Um, I think that get outside, um, spend time with people, um, pay attention to, you know, stuff that you enjoy in your day to day. Um, get on antidepressants if that's what's right for you. Uh, get into therapy. Um, you know, those things are all, that's part of moving through this. And I think that not having, you know, and you need the support from your, from your kind of like the people around you too. Like you really can't get through it alone. You do need support. And one of the curses of something like depression or anxiety is that it's by its nature self-isolating and the cure for it is to come out of isolation. So it's just really hard to do. Um, in terms of like trying to find stuff to sort of pass through to something else, you know, I, I think that if you can get to a point where you can, you know, there's there, the, the book Dune has a fear is the mind killer. Like a lot of this is scary. A lot of this, this sort of like despair and hopelessness is scary. I think that the antidote to, to fear I found is not so much bravery as it is curiosity. And if you can start really trying to like learn more with an open mind and start to read as much as possible and start to like look at a bunch of different viewpoints, you'll eventually find stuff that connects with you and you can cobble together something that works a lot better. And so that's what worked for me. Um, it's obviously not going to work for everyone, but, uh, you know, taking care of yourself and, you know, staying open and staying curious and not letting the terrifyingness of all of this get on top of you is, is probably the best thing I can offer. And, uh, and after answering my question, feel free to plug, you know, any websites, uh, your TikTok channel, any place where folks can kind of find you and keep the, keep the conversation going. If, if today's conversation kind of struck them, I'm curious what's been most influential on you, a book, um, uh, a documentary, uh, a Ted talk. I'm just curious what, cause you, you're a smart person. You, you're very articulate. Uh, it's obvious that these views that you have are very well thought out. I, I agree with much of what you said today. I'm just curious what things you would point to that had the most influence on you. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm always going to, it's, it's always Alan Moore. Like I, I love his, his philosophy. So like, uh, if you want to get a sense of that books like Promethea, which he did kind of go through some of his, his thoughts, the book Swamp Thing, which is, you know, it's a monster a week comic. So it's fun too. Um, but I, I, I found a lot of his ideas to be really useful and, um, then I also got really into uh, another Alan, Alan Watts, um, you know, even as, you know, definitely dabbling in Eastern philosophy helped me uh, quite a bit too, because I found that something like Taoism uh, really connected to me in a way that, um, you know, Western religions did not. Um, and so for, for me, it was kind of just exploring. So like, there's actually a video game you can play called everything where you get to play everything in the universe. You can start as an ant and then you can go up to a tree and then you can go up to a planet. It's just kind of this silly, just kind of fun playing around game. And um, in it, they've got a bunch of audio clips of speeches from Alan Watts that you can discover and listen to. Uh, so if you want a way to explore that philosophy, that's an amazing way to do it. Um, but you know, it's, it's been kind of a lot of things over a very long period of time. And, you know, I, I think that I, I, one of the things I rejected about, about Christianity was that it wanted me to get all of my stuff from one book and I don't want to get my stuff from one book. I found that whenever I, I build something up as a God, something inevitably topples it. Um, you know, it, it, that, that seems to happen over and over again. And so it, I can't be putting my faith in one thing or one person, but rather in having, kind of like a complex web of ideas and interests that, you know, I can kind of follow. But for, for me, the, the, the entry drug was definitely Alan Moore and Alan Watts. Um, 
but if anyone is is interested in in, in the stuff I do, um, yeah, my my Substack is Better Strangers, uh, BetterStrangers.substack.com, and I also on TikTok at Better Strangers Books. I'm new to that, so um, you know, I'm trying not to engage too much with the comments because I've spent enough of my time online. But um, I am tr I am trying to respond to people who who especially who who are cool or constructive. Um, and then yeah, uh, I I'm on most of the other social media platforms under the same thing. Um, but yeah. Thank, thank you awesome. for having me. This was really interesting. Sweet. Yeah, thank you, my friend. We've talked about Alan Watts quite a bit on this podcast. I think you've read him more than I have, Bill. The Illusion of Time, Money, and Ego was one that was deep. Yeah, that was really powerful for you. So that's really interesting. And then I just wanted to post at the end of this, I was really trying to get this course done before this episode so that it would be available. So if this, what we've been talking about, kind of describes describes you and describes where you are. I've put together um, on my website, a nihilism recovery co uh, course, which is all the most common um, resources that I use with clients who are in this place in order to kind of find that foothold. And I loved the language that you use, Matt, at the beginning of this is that for so many, they describe it as this black hole where like, I just can't like I can't build anything. I can't grab a foothold. I just can't make any sense of this. And so I put together um, all my favorite resources and kind of 10 tools that I have for helping people through nihilism. So the first one is going through the four existential fears. And like you said, Matt, is there a fear that we can get curious about so that um, because sometimes there's a fear that's stopping you from progressing through this black hole um, kind of to the other side of nihilism, which is actually a lot of freedom. So we kind of go through the four existential fears and how to face them. We go through Camus, which he was my Alan Moore. Mm -hmm. um, he was really who he probably saved my life, honestly, mm -hmm. um, and go through embracing absurdity and some really important shifts there that were helpful for me. We go through Tolstoy connecting to source, which you talked about kind of going out in nature. Is there something else outside of my mind that I can kind of connect to? Uh, Dostoevsky, we talk about morality. Nietzsche, how to build your own moral code and your kind of code for life. Solzhenitsyn and his story and telling the truth and how telling the truth is going to be your path way into this kind of more authentic life. Finding the present moment, kind of a lot of that Eastern stuff that you were talking about. In fact, Schopenhauer, who's the most pessimistic of all the philosophers said, if there's any religion that's true, it's Buddhism, because it's, at least it's giving you something to deal with the suffering in your own mind, which is where we spend the most of our time. Um, finding a community. I love the movie of Groundhog Day, which is a great nihilism movie, right? So he's nihilistic. It's the same day over and over. He first goes to pleasure. It's no longer pleasurable. He tries to kill himself a thousand times, but time doesn't start again until he actually makes a real human relationship mm -hmm. with um, Annie McDowell, whatever her character is in the movie. And instead of trying to sleep with her, actually making a connection with her. And that's when mm -hmm. time starts again. It's a beautiful nihilistic movie. Um, the story of Alfred Nobel and how to write your own obituary kind of from now and kind of walking towards your death with a little bit more mindfulness, the tool of recreating heaven and hell. There's just a lot of tools. And one thing that religion does is that it's always been philosophy for the masses. And so what I try to do with this course is nihilism does require a little bit of philosophy. Like these are really deep existential ideas. And for someone who does not have the time to go through and find some access point to act, you know, get some resources, get some ideas, get some philosophical shifts that can be helpful, then they can just really remain stuck here. So on my website, no nonsense, spirituality.com.
I have my nihilism recovery course on there and it will really just take you through all of the best resources on how to kind of work with this space and come through on the other side, which is just a much more authentic life of a life you're much more happy to live and eyes wide open. It takes a lot of bravery, but there's just a lot of joy and freedom on the other side of this space. So check that out. Also. Yeah. I love the conversation. Appreciate it very much, Matt. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay. Uh, anything else, Britt? Nope. That's it for me. Thanks everybody. Okay. Have a great day, everyone. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.